Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Lead Inclusively podcast series. I'm your host, Denise Hummel, the CEO and founder of Lead Inclusively, and I have with me Michael Bungay-Stanier. And he, by the way, is a MG100. We both have the luxury of being on Marshall Goldsmith's legacy team. That is how we met. Um, yes. Michael, I am so grateful to know you. That's perfect. Now we have that secret Marshall Goldsmith handshake. The whole exactly, exactly. Up. No one's ever going to know that. <laughs> exactly. um, but I, I want to start in a, in a little bit of a different way than I'm used to starting. Normally, I would tell the world how incredible you are, and they are about to <laughs> but, find but that But you got out. nothing. You got nothing, so you're going to have to go some other way. <laughs> Not right. true. Perfect. Not in the least bit true. <laughs> but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to sort of start a different way and, and make it a little, just a tiny bit more personal. Now, mm -hmm. as you know, our, our mission is all about inclusion, right? right? And the benefits of inclusion in a business environment for real business impact. And so my, my question for you is, um, can you speak to any, any uh, episode in life or experience or anything that you'd want to discuss with our audience about inclusion? I mean, we're looking at you. You're a white male. Um, you're attractive. I know you to be tall as well. And so you've got all this stuff going lot. for you, right? Like a lot. I'm an overeducated, straight, white, tall male who's <laughs> eloquent. So, you know, I got dealt a pretty good set of cards when, when that process was going on. But one of the things that people will already hear in my, my voice is I have a slight uh, speech disability and that's because I have a cleft lip and palate. And if you're not sure what a cleft lip and palate is, it's sometimes called a hair lip. Um, when you're born as a baby, your, um, your top lip doesn't fully form up. And uh, for some people, they'll also have the top of their mouth isn't fully formed as well. So for most people, if you run your tongue over the top of your mouth, it, you're, it's a smooth surface. For me, it's like a, there's a crevice in the middle of it, that's, and that was operated on when I was a, a young kid. So I've got this kind of what I would consider a, a minor uh, form of, I'm not sure what, even what, what the language is. It's not, I wouldn't call it a disability, but it is a, a mark of difference, I guess. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, for lots of, a fair number of kids who have cleft lip and palate, there's, you know, there's all sorts of support groups for them growing up. There's one in Canada called About Face. There's one in the U.S. called The Smile Train. Um, there's great organizations around the world that, like in Nepal, where cleft lip and palates are particularly common, are operating on kids and kind of changing their life through the operation. So I, I have that. And there's, there's certainly been moments where... Um, uh, I can think of at least three moments overtly when somebody, and a couple of times it was a, a, a boss of mine at the time, made some sort of joke about the Cleflet and Palette in an attempt to be funny in a way that really wasn't very funny. It wasn't, you know, it's that moment where, if you've ever seen stand-up comedy where they, they, they lay the joke down and there's that awkward silence. That yep. was kind of the experience like that. Um, so... So there, and you know, as a teenager, when you're when you're self-conscious about everything, I mean, even if you're a perfectly f formed, flawless human being, you're like, oh, I'm so this, I'm so that. Um, I was I was pretty self-conscious about my face then, um, because you know, people with cleft and palates, it's not just the lip, but if you, I have a kind of flattened face and a sort of flattened top lip and stuff. So I've got a there's a profile that's literally associated with my cleft and palate. But for me, I can't really say that um, there's a systemic 
exclusion as part of that. There's certainly moments where I felt hurt by the comments around that from everything from ex-girlfriends to bosses or whatever. But the truth is, you know, my dad had the cleft lemon palate and he's a really good man and a role model of mine. Um, my, my brother closest to me in age was born with a cleft lemon palate. When my youngest brother was born uh, and he wasn't born with a cleft lemon palate, there was this moment of realization where he actually burst into tears because he was like, I've been excluded from the cool club of <laughs> every other person in my family has a cleft lemon palate. What's going on here? And I was like, yeah, you, that's, <laughs> that's... So I had... Um, I had an advantage of um, a family where that was normalized. Um, the fact that, you know, I, as we said at the start, I did get dealt all the other cards. So there's that as well. I also got dealt, um, and my parents don't know where this comes from particularly, but a very robust sense of self and self-confidence. So for me now, you know, I spend, uh, I'm, not famous by any means, but I spend a certain amount of time on stages and presenting in front of people. And I've got to a point where my cleft and palate and the way I speak, I see as an advantage and a way of being more accessible to people. How is rather that? Than a, I'd like to know about well, that. Yeah, you know, there's something about um, the power of vulnerability and the way that status can work. Here's an experience I get when I sometimes watch keynote speakers come up on stage. They come up and somebody reads out the introduction and they're like, this person has won the medal and climbed a mountain and has been recognized by a president and has got a 6.3 GPA. And it's like, there's this long list of accomplishments, which is both boring to hear and intimidating at the same time. And the work that I do in my life and I do with my company boils down to a foundation of going, can you help people connect and have relationships um, and see each other for the person they are? I mean, if you want to get kind of philosophical about it, um, there's a philosopher called Martin Buber and he says, look, two types of relationships, I it relationships and I thou relationships. I it relationships are when you stop seeing the full human in front of you. It's a bit more of a transaction. Mm -hmm. I thou is when you have a kind of human to human connection. You see them in their full glory and messiness and you see yourself in your own full glory and messiness and you're able to make that more powerful, you could almost say spiritual connection. And, you know, I'm not a religious man, but there is something powerful about that work. And part of what that requires is to lay down your armor and put down your shields. And there's a way that me having a cleft lip and palate is an invitation to vulnerability. Cause I'm like, look at my, I'm up there and I've got a speech, you know, disability of some sort. Um, that actually somehow just feels like it gives people permission to, um, just be a tiny, you know, err on the side of being more vulnerable rather than less vulnerable. I think there's there's also a very strong les lesson here, if I just might offer my perspective. I think the fact that you do not see the um, the, the cleft lip, lip and palate and slight speech impediment as a disability, you were, you were like, I guess you can't really consider it a disability when the reality is depending on 
who you are as a person. Right. I mean, that I mean, a different person, Michael, might consider that a crippling sure. disability, right? That's, they might say true. people are judging me by the fact that my lip looks different, right. or they might say people are on first blush might might feel that I'm not intelligent because they hear a, a certain speech impediment and make right. certain associations with it. So I think the first thing that I'm picking up from you is, you know, the, the blessing that you had in your particular family, one, that you weren't the only one. It was more in than, than right. out to have right. it, which is fascinating. But the second that you... Um, your parents obviously did a great job in terms of instilling you with a very core center of self-esteem and, and also just the spirituality with which you approach yeah. things, which is huge. Um, and, and what I think, I, so, so I think I'm going to let the cat out of the bag now and, and, and have you tell our audience what your accomplishments are. And I know that you're a humble person. Yeah. But but if you don't mind, if you would sure. tell them the full extent of your accomplishments so that they can get a sense for the fact that you truly did not allow that impediment disability, call it difference, yeah. call it whatever you like, um, to get in your way. Okay. Well, look, the, the shiny stuff on my resume, and just as long as everybody's hearing going, look, there's so much stories about failure and stumbling and miscellaneous stuff that doesn't make the success list. But I've got a success list. And the most obvious ones are, I was a Rhodes Scholar. So um, won that prize when I was in Australia and went to Oxford University and did a master's degree in literature there. I, um, I've written six books. And the last one in particular was a big hit. It's called The Coaching Habit. Sold three quarters of a million copies now. I self-published it. Um, and that's given me a, a certain amount of profile in that particular world for sure. Um, I was just named the number one thought leader in coaching, really on the back of the success of that, that last book. Um, you know, I started my own company called Box of Crayons, and that's been successful, and it's providing the core training around coaching skills for companies like Microsoft and Salesforce and you know, kind of big well-known brands like that. So, you know, there's, there's a sort of little medals that I can point to, um, which I'm very proud of, but I'm also just aware of so much of that is, you know, it, it's, it's hard work, <laughs> a certain amount of talent, a certain amount of hard work, a certain amount of magic fairy dust happening. <laughs> and you just happen to be in the right place at the right time. I mean, I'll tell you as an example, here's a story. So I'm going to be, I'm applying to be a Rhodes Scholar. And the first thing you need to know is I applied in 1990 and, the, and I, I went up and I went, so how does this whole road scholarship thing work? And the woman said, look, you apply. Everybody gets a first round interview. Then we shorten the list and you get in, there's a, a second round and then we pick the, the winner. I'm like, fantastic. So I sent in my application. I got a letter back going, we're not even giving you a first round <laughs> interview. I was like, I can't believe it. You told me everybody got a first round interview and somehow my application sucked so badly. I didn't even get that first round. So I kind of went away and licked my wounds for a while and then went, okay, I'm going to reapply. And in my final year at university, I applied again. And, uh, and this time I, it was a better application. So I got into the short list and I get summoned in for my interview. And it's a pretty intimidating moment because there's, you know, there's a panel of 12 people. They're in this old room. So there's oak panels everywhere. I can't be sure, but at the time it feels like in, in, in my memory, 
kind of they're all silhouetted and they're shining a bright light in my eyes. So it's like an interrogation out of some weird movie. And they said, here's the opening. And, you know, I'd sweated this. So I prepared all my answers around every question I could think of. And the first question I hadn't prepared, they said, Michael, you've got a, a BA in literature and you're about to finish a law degree and you've applied to do a degree in politics in Oxford. What's wrong with you? Can't you make up your mind? Interesting <laughs> like, question. Yeah, exactly. But my answer, and it was just spontaneous, I went, well, yes and no. And everybody laughed because I'd accidentally made a joke. <laughs> and I was smart enough to realize that I'd made a joke and it had laughed. And what was great about that is everybody now relaxed. I relaxed, they relaxed, and we were into this interview and it went really well and I ended up winning the Rhodes Scholarship. But it's like, and these, it's these little moments of, of luck. I mean, you know, another random story from that, just to show you how perilous all of this stuff is. The night before, the, the, short, the, the group of shortlists, so there's like 15 people on the shortlist, we all go out to dinner in Parliament House in Canberra in Australia. It's like going to the White House in the States, but it's, it's a really posh thing. And of course, it's a beautiful room and it's a beautiful meal. And it's at the same time, it's a terrible meal because everybody's trying to compete with everybody else, but in a way that doesn't really look like you're competing. And, uh, and I was like, oh man, these people are so good. I've got, I've got not a chance here. So what I decided to do was to steal a teaspoon. So I'm like, I'll take it as a memento and I'll be like, look, this is the teaspoon from Parliament House. And it's my memento of the time I almost became a Rhodes Scholar. And um, I forgot because I've got a terrible memory. And why that was a relief was as you leave Parliament House, you, you go through a metal detector <laughs> just to oh, make no. sure you're not stealing anything. So I'm like, oh man, you know, who knows how the interview would have gone the, the next day if they'd caught me stealing a teaspoon, but I'm pretty sure it wouldn't have meant a congratulations, you're now going to Oxford. So, you know, all of these stories are kind of, they're funny, but they're also just an indicator around part of what success is, is putting yourself in the game to have a chance, but then you've just got to get lucky. And I know I've been lucky in a bunch of things. I assume you took the spoon out of your pocket or wherever before you left. Was that the general? I, I just forgot. You know, I <laughs> had this idea and I'm like, oh, that's a good idea. I'll definitely do that. Oh, you forgot to do it. I just forgot to do it. Oh, yeah. okay. So, so, so there was some higher power that was on your side, I like think. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So, so I don't know if you know this about me, but I actually, back in the 90s, uh, litigated and won the first class action under the Americans with Disabilities Act when I was an attorney. I do know and, that. And I fancied that when I started my career in diversity and inclusion, that I could really leverage that experience and and knowledge um, in my journey. And what I have found is that uh, while there is budget for for women and and for and for advancing people of color as well in these initiatives and enterprise, there is almost always um, not budget or not adequate budget to address uh, the disability issues. So I'm going to ask you kind of a weird question, but sure. I'm going to ask you. If you have a suggestion for our listeners, and they're, they're going to be, a lot of them are, are actually a diversity and inclusion practitioners and leaders who do care about these issues, either because yeah. they themselves have disabilities, sometimes hidden disabilities, or family members, or what have you. And the question is this, is there anything that companies can do, either one, ma you know, one manager leader at a time, or as companies as a whole, to have the same sort of... Um, 
positive impact that your parents had on you uh, with the people that, that, that they're managing and interacting with? Is there anything that could be done, even one person at a time? Uh, that's, a, that's a big question. And, you know, I'm, I'm no expert in DNI, so um, I, I'm a little wary of, of trying to offer up some suggestions to people who know far better than I do what, what might happen um, and, and what actually works. And also the, just the danger of going, this worked for me, therefore it's a, we, can, we can scale it up to some sort of overall solution. Well, do you remember, do you remember when I approached you about this podcast and yep. I was very nervous? Do you remember that? I do. Yeah. Because I felt that you had a lot to offer on the basis of what was a slight visual and slight audit, you mm -hmm. know, a slight um, yeah, a speech, speech impediment. impediment. Yeah. And I had to, I had to, to tell you that I had to actually yeah. uh, express that. And I had to do it in a way that was not at all uh, offensive and I was worried about it. And the way I, I handled it, which I have no idea. I mean, you're on the show, so, so obviously yeah. it wasn't horrible. But yeah. the, the only way I could think of to handle it, and granted, you and I know each other, so it was a little easier, was to say, I have an awkward question to ask you. I'm, right. I feel like I might mess up. Yeah, exactly. And so I need to just say it. And I, I, I am open to criticism or optimization of how I might approach this differently. But if I don't at least try... Yeah. Then, 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 then I can't move ahead. Uh, and then, yeah. and then you were open to it and we talked about it. And so yeah. what was that like? What could I have done differently? Does that well, inform this discussion at it all? It does. I mean, I've got, I've got some principles that I use in general for the way I try and approach people and invite them into a conversation or relationship. So some of these might be scalable. I think one of them you're pointing to, actually two of them you're pointing to it, by pointing to our interaction and setting this up. The first is framing, which is like, let me set expectations so that you understand where I'm coming from and what I'm trying to do here. And that I, I show up with a good intent. That just kind of means that I'm not on the back foot. Because if you just come up going, Michael, you got the speech thing going on. So how about the podcast? I'd be like, okay, what? <laughs> where, did, where, where did they come from? And you're like, you kind of warmed me up. The other thing, which is kind of what we're doing now, and you also checked in at me uh, when we met and had this conversation, was after the conversation, you asked about the conversation. You went, you know, what did I do? What could I do differently next time? How sh what, what can I, what's the lesson I can take out of this experience? Mm -hmm. So there's a kind of an active commitment to go, how is this working? How did it work? How did I think about that? So I think those are two useful things right away. There were two other suggestions. One is based on the work around nonviolent communication. So Marshall Rosenberg. And um, I, I love his very simple model as I understand it. And it helps me just keep my communication a little cleaner and a little clearer. And basically he says, communication has four parts to it. There's data, there's feelings, there's judgments, and then there's wants and needs. And what normally happens is all of that stuff collides in our head and swirls around in a, in a holy mix, particularly data and judgments. They kind of get mixed up together. Feelings don't often get talked about, particularly if you're a white man, but you know, just in general, people aren't that good at owning their own feelings. And people are, are often 
poor at being clear about the request that they want to make. And there's a way to say in communication in general, being able to tease these apart and then be more deliberate about what you share in a conversation can be really helpful. So for me, I'm always like ground any conversation in data. That's really helpful because then we just figure out whether we've got a shared understanding of the facts. I, I use this particularly in feedback preparation. I'm thinking about feedback. Get clear on what you want, because when you're clear on what you're what, what you want, the conversation becomes it, it has a natural arc to it. So part of what made our conversation easier is you're like, I've got a goal to have you come on the podcast because you'll have an interesting perspective. And that just framed, uh, this is why we're talking about this. And then feelings and judgments. We, we have so many judgments. I mean, it kind of predominates all the stuff that's floating around your head. It's the judgments. And you have judgments about the other person. You have judgments about yourself. You have judgments about the situation. So, you know, you could have gone, okay, I've got judgments about Michael. He, he seems to know what he's talking about, but he, he doesn't seem to be too concerned about his cleft lip and palate. He, um, or he, he's a remarkably good looking man. You probably didn't have that judgment, but <laughs> never mind. Um, you probably had judgments about yourself. Like I know how to handle conversations like this. I don't know how to handle conversations like this. I don't know how to have this conversation with straight white tall man. I mean, who knows? And then judgments about the situation, which is like, this is a safe space to ask it. This is not a safe space to ask it. All of that. Exactly. It's just helpful knowing all of that around and then choosing which judgments you might share that are useful to move the conversation forward. Um, so, and then you go five core feelings, mad, sad, glad, ashamed, and afraid. So you go, and you, you kind of did this. You're like, Michael, I'm a little nervous because um, I'm not sure how this conversation will go. This conversation could be a, a little awkward. And there was, by the way, just to just to interject in terms of the yeah. shame shame part of this, they were yeah. shame they were shame too because I'm a diversity and inclusion professional. Marshall's named me, right. you know, the the world leader in diversity and inclusion, and I have to come and ask a question that might be a, a big mistake that might result in offending someone. Right. That the the shame piece of that was high. Yeah, sure. So then you're like, it's useful to understand what's going on in you. And then it's useful to go, how much of this is worth sharing in this conversation that moves it forward or, or not? And often in conversations, our judgments, when we, we're not clear that they're judgments, they can derail the conversation a little bit. So really helpful just to go, but what I want is to invite Michael. The data is Michael does have a cleft and palate. We, are, we have a, a shared kind of com, communal understanding because of the Marshall Goldsmith piece. Um, Michael is eloquent. Mike, I have a diversity podcast. I mean, all of those are the facts. And then you're like, hey, so here are the facts. And you kind of shared them. And then here's my judgment. It was like, I, you know, I want, here's my want. I'd like you to come on and a guest. Here's my judgment. Well, this is awkward. And I'm a little embarrassed that it's awkward because I should know better. And, and you know, you may, be, you may take offense because I don't know you particularly well. And teasing it apart meant that you kind of constructed an, a conversation that, that allowed me to enter into it. Now, there's one more piece of this that I want to share with you, um, which is what, you know, you know how you spoke about earlier in the podcast, uh, the difference between when you're interacting with someone and kind of, and, and you, you're going to have to reframe this because I'm not mm -hmm. going to say it the way you did, but the gist of it was 
that you can be interacting with someone and really see them. You know, you're you're present, right. they're I present, and you're, yeah. that's it. That's it. Exactly. And then there are times, and I will tell you for me, the typical scenario would be a networking situation where I don't know the people and I'm forcing myself to have a conversation and I'm actually wishing I was not there. This is, this is, this is me talking, you know, I, 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 you know, with you, that wasn't the case, of course, because the MG 100s are like my family, but in a, in a random networking situation, it's quite different. Um, But uh, and so, and so, your statement about the judgments of of actually and the data of actually evaluating the circumstances, the nature of the relationship, and I was taking a little bit of a chance because we don't know each other very, very well, right. but not as much of a chance because I know what kind of human being you are, and that you would likely give me a chance to mess up and then right. in a very kind and collegial way be part of my learning and growing process, right? Sure. This comes up in in a lot of circumstances. Like if you and I were working together, we show up at the same meetings every day and yeah. I'm looking at you, let's say I'm looking at your face and I'm thinking, I'm wondering to myself, I wonder how that happened. I wonder yeah. if he was born with that. I wonder how he feels about the slight speech impediment and I don't actually get a chance to say say that. Then it ruminates in my brain and sort of interferes in the rest of the the um, the ability to really see you because right. I'm wanting the answers to those questions and I'm afraid to ask them. So another situation, uh, you know, in and I'm talking, you know, in reality in the workplace would be yeah. you see someone who, based on it, could just be their their dress, it could be a, right. a androgynous dress, uh, hair haircut, uh, you know. Uh, way of you know physically interacting in the world where you're asking yourself is that a, is that does that person identify as a man as a woman yeah. heterosexual or not and it's actually none of your business right I think that's part of it yeah but but you're still thinking about it and and wondering if you have this opportunity to engage in this safe conversation and the reason why this is important is you may have heard we we talk about the three r's of inclusion and one of them is that well it's receptive reflective and revitalizing receptive is not just being accepting of the differences in others but actually showing active curiosity in a in a very you know obviously appropriate and collegial way. And a lot of people in the course of my work will say to me, I just, I don't know how to have these conversations. I don't know how to be safe. And I, I don't know. And, and what right? do you recommend? Because I, I mean, I feel a little bit the same. Like I, one thing I'm like, I'm fine. If somebody comes up to me and goes, Hey, Michael, what's, what's up with your face? What's up with your lip? Cause I'm <laughs> like, you know, I'm really comfortable with it. And I've, but but in I a work environment that, that probably yeah. would not work, um, you right. know, be, because it it would it would open up. There's too there's too much vulnerability there. There's there's too, exactly. like you said, there's no context. Exactly. Um, and so so what I would often recommend, and, and I and I want you to call me on it because if this yeah. doesn't sound right, um, you know, tell me. But what I would normally recommend is to wait till you actually know the person. 
um, you know, in more than just, you know, I, I've seen them once or twice, but give right. yourself time to actually know each other and to create, to build sort of a little bit of a trust relationship, number one. Yeah. Number two, to have context for actually wanting to ask the question, which is, I think that's the way you put it, which is, what is my motivation? If my motivation is knowledge, that's one motivation. If my motivation is to get to know the person better, yes. their journey, that's another um, I could have a, a friend or, or a colleague or, or a family member who has a similar situation and might want to get some advice. So all those motivations um, are important that I, that I be clear on them and that I be able to express them. If I'm asking someone yeah. else to be vulnerable, yeah. I need to be vulnerable too. I also think that doing it in a private setting, you know, totally. like you know, as opposed to in front of a whole bunch of people is, exactly. is fairly critical. Can I, and, can I jump in and add something yes, there? Please, because I, I think it's a really useful, deliberate strategy to go, am I providing as many exit routes as possible so that we don't lose face? I because, love that. Because if you, if you, make, if you make it a win-lose scenario, somebody wins and somebody loses or at least that's what's at risk so i you know in in a slightly different context which is just in general how you offer up ideas and solutions when you're coaching somebody which is more my kind of area of expertise you know i will teach phrases that are all about diminishing the offer so that it can be turned down and nobody loses face because if i come to you and i go denise here's the idea that you need to fix this thing that you asked me about. And you're like, that's a terrible idea. Where do we go from that? One of us is going to lose now in this conversation. But if I go, look, Denise, I'm not really sure. I'm no expert here, but I'm going to just take my best guess. And let me just put it on the table. It might be completely wrong, but here's one possibility for going forward with this. Now, if you go, oh, that's interesting, but that's not going to work. I'm like, yeah, I thought so. <laughs> that's fine. Right. And, right. And, and we can both look at this and go, yeah, Michael offered it up in a degree of humility and uncertainty and willingness to say it might be wrong. And now we can walk away from that. Yeah. I think one of the things I said to you when, when I was you know, initially speaking to you was, um, I, I have no clue as to whether you're going to be comfortable with, with this. And if you're right. not, we can just you know, exactly. change the subject and just, yeah. I'll just apologize ahead of time, you know, for bringing it up sort of thing, which would have given you the opportunity to say, Denise, I really appreciate that, that your, your, you know, curiosity about this, but to tell you the truth, it's not something that I talk about. It's kind of personal. Exactly. Yeah. I, I do also love your point around understanding your motivation. Cause there are times where I've been in a, in a on the other side going, oh, I'm, what's going on with that? <laughs> Whatever that might be. And then I'm just like, you know, people are just so complicated and interesting and everybody's got something messed up with them in one way or another or different about them in one way or another. Why do I even need to know? Is this in service to our relationship? Is it in service to something else that is in my life? Or is it just me kind of going, oh, it'd be good to know this. Yep. And mostly I try and sit with the place going, you know what, I can, I can wait for this to emerge if it's appropriate at the time that it, it shows up rather than needing to kind of nudge it forward and go, I just satisfy my curiosity, please. Mm -hmm. You know, yes. Like, and, and, and that, gosh, that is a very important point. And I just want to kind yeah. of buttress that a little bit before. And then I really want to hear about your book. Sure. Uh, but, um, but 
that that is another point is that for example if you if you speak to a person of color and you you want to ask them about the history of slavery um their response might be i am not your personal repository of exactly. historic information Don't go look it up on the look. internet <laughs> yeah, that exactly. is not a good motivation yeah. um if i were wanting to ask about their 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 personal journey um you know related to yeah. you know how how being a non-white person for example might have impacted their journey as they rose to the top or what have you and because i i really am genuinely interested in their experience that is a completely different um right. scenario right um but what i really do want to ask you about and you were uh you were nice enough um michael to to make your your new book available to to us but i i wanted to ask you a little bit more uh, about it. It's, um, the newest one is advice trap, correct? That's right. Yeah. And, um, and how does, first of all, how does that differ from your other books and what, what made you write it to begin with? What was the impetus? So, you know, the coaching habit, um, I spent three years with the coaching habit trying to get a publisher to publish it. And I really thought I was going to get it done because an earlier book I've written called do more great work. It got picked up by a New York publisher. It sold, maybe a hundred thousand copies or thereabouts. So it's like, I've got a bit of a track record, you know, I, you know, I'm worth something. <laughs> you know, I spent three years trying to get this publishing house to, to pick it up. And they're like, ah, no, not quite. It's not right. Not yet. And I was like, ah, and finally at a certain point with the coaching habit, I was like, okay, I've come back to connect with why I think this is a really good book. And I've got to the point where I'm like, look, Publish it, don't publish it. I don't care. You just need to give me a yes or a no because the maybe is killing me here. Right. And they went no. And I was like, what? <laughs> I was <laughs> outraged. I was pretty sure that I was pushing them into a yes negotiation. But it's but a lot it better than not knowing. It's a lot better than not knowing. And of course, it, it worked out really well for me because that rejection then made me go, well, I'm going to self-publish it. And now it's sold three quarters of a million copies. So it's like I'm... I've got more control. I've got more flexibility. I've got more money. I've got better. Wow. I mean, there's, there's all sorts of good things wow. that came out of that. So you still, you, you didn't take that rejection as validation that what you had done, that there wasn't a market for it. You were like, I'm going to reach the world. And then you just went and did it. Well, I, I can't say that I'm going to reach the world because with books, most books sell less than 2,000 copies. So you've got to have a really strong motivation to go. I just Well, three quarters of a million writing. is a lot more than a handful I of copies know. though, isn't it? It totally is. Yeah. And, but, yeah. I, but I was willing to back myself. I went, I've got a good reason to do it. I've got, a, I've got an ecosystem that supports a book, meaning that if people buy the book, there's a chance of going buy programs that I have to sell through Box of Crayons. Um, so I'm like, it's worth it. It's the, I, I see the balance between the risk and the reward, and I'm prepared to throw the dice on that. So over the four years since that came out, I've had just a lot of wonderful emails and feedback going, this book is really helpful, just seven questions. It's changed the way I think about coaching. I started using the questions. My team and family and parent relationships, they're all better. And, I, and of course, I love these emails because they're basically saying, Michael, you're a genius. And I'm like, yeah, it's, it's true. I am a genius. <laughs> but, you know, there's, there's a lot of people who I'm sure pick up the and I don't hear from them, but they pick up the book and they read it and they quite like it. But for some reason, they find it very hard to change their behavior. 
So even though they're like, in theory, I get that I should be curious a little bit longer. And in theory, I understand that it's just a question of using the seven questions or even just some of the seven questions. But in practice, I, I, I just like giving advice and I well, keep doing that. Let's, 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 let's talk about that because I am, my, my, my kids who are, you know, at this point, you know, college age, uh, they, they are always bringing to my attention <laughs> that I am over coaching or that I am constantly offering unsolicited advice. And by the way, I do that a lot, especially the more I care about somebody, the more totally. unsolicited advice I give them because I, I, I consider that I'm giving them value, you know, that I'm sharing exactly. my wisdom and that I'm giving them my mind share. And isn't that a wonderful thing? What a Yes, <laughs> which, which I am now aware that people don't actually like unsolicited advice. But well, what it's, are it's, these... It's connected to the conversation we're just having around how you have a conversation about a person with a difference or a mm -hmm. person that, and the like, which is like, what's your motivation for this? Mm -hmm. And who's it really serving? Right. It's, yeah, it's, 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 it's helping me to pontificate about how, how smart I am. That, and as to a, make yeah. you go, I'm committed as a mother and I'm showing them that I love them and I'm still important in their lives and I can still shape their destiny a little bit. I mean, I don't know you. Darn you it, Michael. Why do you have to be so smart? How annoying. <laughs> exactly. And, and, there's, and, and you know, you, there's more to you than just building a brilliant business. I mean, there's a lot of deeper motivations that could be yep. behind the reason why you love to give your kids advice. So what are these questions and how are they used to avoid the advice trap? Well, the starting point, I think, is for you to go, for people just to realize that quite possibly they have an advice monster. This is the metaphor we use, which is like when somebody starts talking and the closer you are to them, often the more violent your advice monster is. As soon as they start telling you something like, hey, mom, I'm back from school. And you're like, oh, oh. Let me tell you some stuff. Because I was in school 30 years ago. I should know. I, I, know, I know stuff. And you know, in the book, we talk about these three different personas of the advice monster. There's tell it, there's save it, and there's control it. And it kind of speaks to these deeper motivations about why we like to give advice, what, what giving advice gives us. Tell it the noisiest of the advice monsters like oh my job is to have all the answers all the time and that's how i get validation and that's how my ego gets stroked and how i get status oh heck yeah and, and how i get reassurance which is like oh i'm the person who needs the answers mm -hmm. of course the standard is you need to have all the answers to all the problems all the time which is impossible and overwhelming and kind of frustrating the second advice monster is save it and it's going to put its arm around you and go on denise your job is to make sure nobody fails. Don't let anybody fail ever. Don't let them fail at anything. Even the stuff that you don't even know that they're doing, don't let them fail at that. Because if mm -hmm. they fail, you fail. Mm -hmm. And of course, that's impossible. I'm not a parent myself. I'm happily child-free. But you know how impossible it is to save your children and rescue them. They're, they're, they're off on their own. Or your friends or your lovers or your husband or wife. Or anybody. Yeah. <laughs> or anybody. Yeah. Um, or your clients, then, for that matter. Exactly. Yeah. And then your third uh, persona is control it. Control it, which is the sneakiest of the three goes. Look, the only way you win is if you make sure you're in control of everything all the time. So make sure you've got your fingers in every pie. Make sure you're shaping every conversation. Make sure that you're clear on what the outcome is. Don't let any kind of random factors in because then you lose control. And when you lose control, you fail. Yep. And... 
all of us but have that's a all- really that's a really tough um parameter for a leader right because it's it can be paralyzing they're all impossible they all set impossible standards you cannot have all the answers you cannot rescue all the people you cannot control the chaos and we do our best to fight it because we've been trained for years to to think that we can and part of what taming your advice monster does is it opens up a willingness to empower others, not by giving them the answer, but by helping them find their own answer mm-hmm. to not rescue people, but by helping them find their own paths, not to kind of control the chaos, but open up to the future and see people step in and step up to what that offers. Michael, I, I assume that you know that there's an overwhelming connection between what you just said and what we do in the area of inclusion in terms of empowering people rather than telling them what to do so that they can become the future leaders of tomorrow. Well, exactly. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think that's where we started, which is I had you have these conversations and how do because it comes down to this kind of foundation piece, I think around I it and I thou, mm-hmm. because when you're giving them the advice, here's the message that you're actually saying, you're not good enough. I'm, I've got, I'm better than you. That's what you're saying. I'm better than you and you're not good enough. And that is the dynamic when you've just got that default response to giving advice because advice itself is fine it's the default response to say my job is always to give you advice and you know this better than i do denise but surely that's exactly the same dynamic that happens in the diversity inclusion conversation which is there is an unspoken statement in the dynamic that's playing out that i am better than you and that you're not good enough you're not fast enough smart enough capable enough experienced enough whatever it might be and that dynamic just plays out. And we're all trying to get to that same place going, see the person for all that they are, not for and, what, and, they, and what even they lack. With, Michael, even with the best of intentions, right? Because I mean, oh, totally. we're wanting, for example, as women, as people of color, we're wanting a mentorship and sponsorship, but we're wanting it in a way that is not patriarchal, that is not condescending, right? Yeah, that, totally. is, that is more as, as, as being a partner um, you know, to, to, to getting this done. So let me ask you a question because we're getting kind of to the end of our time wow, here. Should I, should, I know that went too fast, actually. <laughs> we might have to do a follow-up at some point. Should we leave people hungry for more about the seven questions? Because, uh, you know, for example, that book is sitting um, on my shelf. I started it on the airplane on the way back and didn't get to finish it. And I'm, I'm dying now <laughs> to, to read it this weekend. Should we leave them just clamoring uh, for, for more? I, I will say this, if people want to Google the seven questions, the, the coaching habit's been out for four years, so that they're, they're everywhere if you Google the coaching habit questions. But let me give you two questions that people might be able to take and use right away. And I call these the bookend questions. In the, in the new book, The Advice Trap, I talk about why pairing questions can be so powerful. And the bookend questions give you a way in and a way out of a conversation that can be powerful. The opening question, the kickstart question, as we call it, is simply what's on your mind. And what's on your mind is a powerful question because it says to the other person, I'm asking you to bring the agenda. I want to hear what, what, what you want to talk about. But it's also focusing. It's, it doesn't say tell me everything or tell me anything. It says, what are you excited about or worried about or you know, overwhelmed by or waking up at three o'clock in the morning and thinking about, you know, let's go to the thing that matters most to you. So it, it is both subtly directive, but very empowering at the same time. Love it. And you can pair that with 
the, the, the question number seven in the book, which is the learning question. And that question is what was most useful or most valuable here for you? What was most useful or most valuable here for you? And what that does is three things actually. The first is it asks the other person to extract the value from the conversation. And quite frankly, a lot of time people don't do that. They don't realize what, what a brilliant conversation they've just had. And they forget it almost instantly. By asking that question, you just disrupt the slide onto the next thing. And you go, tell me, extract the value. Secondly, and this is really important, I think, in the DNI space, is you get feedback on what actually worked so that you can do more of that next time. Yep. And when you hold a, let's call it a dominant perspective, like I would as a straight white man, I don't always know what was most valuable or most important to the other person. I don't get what worked and what didn't work. And I think the third thing you get, and this is a little more, a little more tricky, a little Machiavellian is if you are constantly asking people what was most useful or most valuable about this conversation, you are constantly framing an interaction with you as being valuable and interesting and useful. And it just builds your reputation as being somebody who nurtures and is able to bring out the valuable, interesting, useful stuff in people and in an interaction. Okay. So let me, let me end this podcast then by asking you, uh, Michael, what was the most valuable part of this interaction for you? Exactly. So I'm going to answer that. But I also think it'd be interesting to have the people who are listening in that to get them to share their feedback with you around. So what are they taking yep. away from this? You know, totally how, how interesting was it? What, what, yep. Where did it really strike a chord? Yep. You know, for me, it's, it, I hadn't really made the connection, the one that you made just minutes ago going, that same dynamic in the advice trap, which is I am better than you, you are not good enough, is exactly, I think what you're saying is really the same or very similar to the dynamic that plays out in the diversity and inclusion space. Mm -hmm. I hadn't quite seen how that work is kind of rooted in the same foundations. How about for you? What was well, most useful for you? For, for me, um, that I was lucky enough to 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 test my um, interaction with with a, with a trusted colleague, and that you are giving enough and open enough and consultative enough to have given me um, a response. And I tr and it was a positive response. But I truly believe that if I had messed up, that you would have said, "Okay, Denise, here's here's what I experienced." Um, you know, you would have probably assured me. I think that that you understand that it wasn't my intent, but you would right. have been able to contribute to my growth as a human being in a way that, you know, wasn't you did this, you did that, or advice, 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 but would be um, sort of a consultative uh, conversation. And it came alive quite beautifully here. And the connection between uh, that and your your book and your and your new book is just is just wonderful. And That's I do perfect. I do hope that we will have the opportunity um, as the book gets gets out there to to discuss this even further. Well, let's let's ask the people who are listening to this, which is if you got this far, should we do a part two on this? Yeah. Or uh, or, Let us know. or if you feel not, if you're like, please, Mike, Denise, do not invite Michael back again. <laughs> don't do not copy me on that email because I don't want to know that. But do okay, let Denise know because she will want to know. <laughs> yeah.
That sounds great. Okay. I am Denise Hummel. I am the CEO and founder of Lead Inclusively. This is the Leading Inclusively podcast. I'm here with Michael Bungay-Stainer, and I'm feeling very, very grateful, uh, Michael, to have had you here. Thank you. It was fun. Thanks. See you all again very soon.